It's good to be back with you guys. Always great to be here. What a sweet fellowship this church has and has so much meaning to uh, our family and uh, just to, to see what God's doing, to see familiar faces when we come back and to see new faces. It's just exciting to see God continuing to work here at Cornerstone and uh, excited to hear from the, the, the teams going back out and that Marcus is going to be back for your camp. Make sure you go to the camp. You know, it's an awesome time just to get away and do that kind of stuff. It really is. I really encourage you to do that. I tried Googling a coupon once to something like that, and I about ruined my iPad trying to cut it out. I'm old school. <laughs> a man gets on a bus. It's been a horrible day. I mean, it's just been a terrible day for this guy. He gets on the bus. He's been hunting for jobs all day. He's out of work. Um, just nobody's responding well. He's not dressed very well. He doesn't have the clothes because he's been out of work to for a suitable for an interview and he just in his worn out clothes and he's down to his last two dollars his wife's at home his kids are at home he's wondering how he's going to provide he's thinking about it as he gets on the bus he's like how am I gonna what am I gonna tell my family what am I gonna tell my kids when you know here it is almost Thanksgiving and, and nothing's nothing seems to be going well I don't even have a job and we just we're down to the very end of it I don't have a turkey or anything what kind of father am I what kind of Husband am I? What kind of provider am I for my family? So as he gets on the bus, he finally comes to this open seat. And he thinks, oh, great, because it's right beside this guy who's dressed like really nice suit. And he's a professional guy. And in his lap, of all things, this guy has this big old turkey. And that's the very thing he can't bring home to his family. He thinks to himself as he sits down, he probably never had a hungry day in his life. As he sits there, he starts talking, the two of them, and he starts to feel bad because it turns out that this guy that was dressed all nice and everything was a nice fella, uh, friendly enough, so much so that uh, he felt even open enough to share with this guy about some of the struggles he'd been going through that day. And, and the, the, the professional guy seemed genuinely concerned about him, so much so that he, he, he turns to the guy and says, how much money do you have in your pocket? And he says, you know, all I have is $2, and he counts it out. He says, here, he takes this huge tom turkey and puts it in his lap and says, $2 is yours. He's embarrassed. He's like, sold, man, this is such a neat provision. Uh, why was I wrong about that guy? I'm looking at him thinking, uh, he's got everything going his way. He doesn't care about anybody else. His heart leaped, his, his, left, his, his feet barely touched the ground on the way home. He got home. The kids came running. The wife came beaming. Uh, he started to tell the story about the turkey, and they started cooking the bird, and it was just a, a special time of encouragement for the family. So they, they started to open the box with the turkey, and, and as they opened the box, every eye open, every eye watching, he begins to unwrap the turkey. And, and as his kids watched, and as the paper fell away, it, re it revealed that there wasn't a turkey there at all, but it was a paper mache turkey that had been weighted to feel like the real thing. He'd been ripped off. Now he just feels like the ultimate bottom, right? I've lost it. Now everything, even my $2 is gone. His wife starts in about blowing their last $2. The kids start crying in disappointment. And the man thinks to himself, what kind of wicked guy does that to somebody else? What a dirty, rotten guy. I knew I shouldn't have trusted him pretty bad to do that to somebody down on their luck, isn't it? It seems there's more to the story. This is a true story, by the way. Uh, there's a guy in Dallas at Dallas Theological. His name's David Roper. Uh, it's one of his friends there in Texas. Let me tell you the story from the other guy's perspective now. 
There was a young lawyer who worked for a law firm in Dallas. He was a bachelor, 28, 29 years old, lived alone in an apartment. And as was the custom at his law firm, the, the, the president of the firm would always like to give out turkeys to every employee. It was a big deal. He'd like to you know, line them up on the tables. And as they came through, he'd give them a turkey, shake their hand. And it was like, I really appreciate you. It's kind of supposed to be a big deal, right? This guy didn't really look forward to it because he's 28, 29. He lives by himself. He doesn't know how to cook a turkey, doesn't want to cook a turkey, doesn't care about a turkey, too much leftovers, too much effort to do, all this kind of stuff, and he used to kind of complain about it a little bit amongst his friends at the law firm. Well, some of his friends saw that it would be funny to play a joke on him this time by taking his turkey and substitute it with a paper mache turkey and weight it so that it feels like a real turkey so that until he gets home, he doesn't know that he didn't get a real turkey and then it would be just a big joke. He goes home on that for Thanksgiving holiday, not knowing that his friends had decided to play a trick on him, not knowing that they'd stole the turkey, that they replaced it with paper mache turkey and all that kind of stuff. He strikes up this conversation with this guy who's obviously down on his luck, and he thinks to himself, what a great opportunity to use this turkey for something valuable, right? But I don't want to embarrass the guy by just giving it to him. Maybe I'll just say, you know, you want to, what do you got in your pocket? And he obviously wouldn't have much of anything, and the guy said he had $2, he gave it to him, and he got off the bus thinking the same thing. Man, how awesome is this? I was able to help this guy. I feel really good about everything that's going on. Until he shows up at work Monday, his friends reveal the joke, and now he feels absolutely terrible what he's done to this guy. In fact, so much so that he and his friends went around on that bus route looking for this guy again so they could fix it and make it right. You see, what that story tells us, is it brings about this idea of just how impossible it is to know the heart of somebody, to know their motives for doing something just from a brief encounter. No matter how obvious these things may seem, the guy who was down on his luck thought the young lawyer was, was a special type of evil, but he was trying to do the right thing, and he just was in the middle of a practical joke played on him by some friends. That wasn't the case. Today what happens if you open your Bible to the book of James chapter 2, James takes us to an issue that's going to hit home with all of us to some extent. And the issue is this, it's about partiality. It's also referred to as respecting persons, or favoritism, or prejudice, or discrimination, or snobbery. It, it includes the idea really of judging somebody else based upon limited outward experience, okay? judging others based on what we can see from a limited perspective in the outward appearance. Now, one thing I really love about the Word of God and I love about being a Christian is, hey, let me ask you this. This is a little, little quiz here. How were you saved? Were you saved by works? Anybody? Any works of your own? No, right? That's basic 101. I'm saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. If I saved myself because of works, guess what? I could say, hey, didn't I do a great job getting me into heaven, right? Even if it was just a little bit, like the, uh, the, the uh, Mormon way. That's like, we're saved by God's grace up to a certain point, and then we add our own stuff to it. It gets us over the hump, right? No, no. We're saved by grace alone, by God, uh, by faith in him, that he even grants us that faith. It's an amazing thing to, to ponder. And what's really cool about that is he doesn't just save us and change our eternal address, right? Like, all of a sudden, I'm saved, and now it's just like, well, now I'm not... David Cummings is going to live in hell for eternity. Now David Cummings is going to live in heaven for eternity, right? It's not, it's not just that, although that's pretty awesome, right? It's so much more than that. Because what he does is he redeems us. 
He transforms us and he continues to progressively sanctify us and change us and conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. This is pretty awesome, okay? What that means, and I think what is often lost with many people, is that means that we are to be distinct by the nature of what God has done in our lives. Are you following me with this? The Bible consistently confronts us with God's otherliness. His holiness is part of that, right? It shows us that the way of of God's heart is so different from the natural man's heart. And, And as he changes and transforms us and molds us and shapes us, he is changing even our perspective so that we start to reflect, as in a mirror dimly, right? Him. What that means is we begin to respond very differently than what our natural man's heart would like, how it would like to respond, right? And if somebody persecutes you, as a natural man, what's your response? Anybody? Come on, I'm not, you're not going to get failed for a wrong, right? If somebody persecutes you, and just for in real life, you're not a Christian, what would be your response, typically? Get back at them, revenge, anger, what? All those kind of things, right? The Bible tells us what? That we're not to, to, for, we're not to get revenge for them. God's the one who gives revenge. But we're to uh, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. That's a whole different deal, right? I mean, the best natural man might go, well, I'm just going to ignore them. But I sure I'm not going to love them. And God says, no, no, no. That's not it. I'm changing. I'm transforming you into the image of my son. Let me tell you what. You're to be like my son, and, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm changing you. It's by my grace, and you're empowered by my spirit and directed by my word. It's all your resources are given to you by me. Now, what I want you to do is love your enemy. Actively love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you, right? And, and, and the natural man's life, you spend most of your life trying to accumulate for yourself, Right? What's mine is mine. Let everybody fend for themselves. I want more. I want more. I want bigger. I want better, right? The picture of the the Christian is is a sacrificial love that gives, that that esteems others as more important than even themselves. That's freaky crazy stuff, isn't it? That's supernatural if that's happening. This one right here that we're talking about, I, I submit to you, is no less dramatic than loving an enemy or uh, esteeming another as more important than yourself or any of the other things that our great God empowers us and directs us to do. And, and this is one that I think is dead center in our culture right now. Wouldn't you agree? We are a segmented society. You know, all the talk of race and, and uh, socioeconomic divisions, all this kind of stuff. This is dead center news stuff. This is what everybody's writing about by and large. These are all the problems. And, and quite honestly, the church has failed so often to stand up and show itself to be different. To love others as Christ loved them. I mean, you go back to the Civil War. I grew up in the South, okay? The churches were often arguing against, you know, the, with the whole race thing, with blacks on this thing, there were you know, darkness and light and all this kind of nonsense. It was poor exegesis and dead wrong theology. You want to know what the difference is between your race and my race? Nothing. 
I mean, yeah, there may be some physical things based on where we come from and stuff like that. But you know what? We all go back to who? Noah, right? There was a flood. Remember that? Shem, Ham, Japheth, different thing. One race. Don't get too excited about, you know, who's moving in next door. All this guys. See, because what we've been accustomed to do is we want to be comfortable with people who are like us, whether that be in our financial brackets, if it be in our, our skin tone, if it be in our job, we're white collar, blue collar, all this kind of stuff. We want to be around people typically that are just like us. It affirms us. And we're really weak that way. So what happens is, if we're not careful, is we start to look at people and put people into classes that do not exist. We look at a rich man and say, well, he's better than a poor man. This is all through the church right now, right, with the health and wealth and, st and stuff and all that nonsense. You know, boy, if God's on your side, you're going to be healthy and wealthy. Your finances are going to be perfect. Can I just say baloney to that? That's Greek. Right? The Son of Man, that's Jesus, had no place to lay his head. What was wrong with his plan? What was he doing wrong? This issue of partiality is something that's it's very deep within us. And I think as we seek to reach a lost and dying world around us, it's important that we, we lay aside this kind of nonsense. Okay? We just put it aside. It is the idea of looking at somebody else and by what you see in a relatively brief experience, by their outward appearances, by externals, you are judging what's going on in their heart and where they belong in the, in the kingdom of God. This issue is one that has no place in the body of Christ and in his church. Okay? Many today play favorites. We're guilty, as I said, of racism, basis of skin color, classism, basis of money or social economic position, culturalism. I mean, we will segment based on music styles and things like that, right? The church is split up all over on that kind of nonsense, isn't it? How silly is that? Backgrounds, education, all kinds of stuff. There's no place for this in the church, folks. The church, I had a friend of mine when I was in Houston, Texas many years ago. He, he called into the ministry as well, and he said, you know, I think I'm gonna, I've been called by God to go reach the top 2% of the income bracket in Mexico City. Well, good, go reach the top 2%, but work on the other 98 too, right? I mean, I, I, the, the early church, I love the early church. Read Acts sometimes. You got a rich guy in there. You got a poor guy in there. You got uh, all different backgrounds, even different races, the Jews, the Gentiles, all this kind of stuff coming together. And it's like, yeah. It's not this, it's like, oh, we're this, you know, a Coke commercial. I'd like to teach the world to sing. It's not that. It's the idea that I care about eternal souls, right? I care about what Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ looks down and he sees you, he does not see uh, an octogenarian. He does not see an Asian or a white person or a rich person or a poor person. He sees somebody who is, uh, apart from him, an enemy who needs salvation and redemption. James, as James is prone to do in the book of James, does not mince words. I love that about James. It lays me open. It hurts. But I love it because he's so clear. He lays it out plain as day. And this is an important issue of the church today. It needs to stop manifesting itself within the fellowship of the body because it, it hurts the fellowship. It hurts our ability to reach lost folks. It even hurts our individual growth. And it's an issue that's common. So we're going to spend two weeks on this passage, this week and next, Lord willing, on the issue of this personal favoritism. 
James 2, are you there? Follow along as I read verses 1 through 13. I'm reading from the New American Standard. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, verse 5, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich man who oppresses you and personally drags you to court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has been guilty of it all. For he said, do not commit adultery. He also said, do not commit murder. But if you don't commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now James starts out by bringing up point number one on your outline, the sin of favoritism, okay? My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. James makes it very clear that for believers, for Christians, there's, there's no place for this idea of being a respecter of person to play favorites or to show partiality. So the question's real simple if you're doing this in a, a flow chart, right? Here's your flow chart question, okay? Are you a Christian? You see the little flow chart? Yes or no, right? Okay, have you answered it? You got, the, got it in here? Yes? Hopefully, and most of you, if not, if it's no, come see me afterwards. I got a whole other sermon I can help you out with, okay? Yeah, if you answered yes to that question, then what James says here is there's no place as a believer in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ for this. Shouldn't do it. It's unacceptable. Does not fit. <coughs> Excuse me. What's the type of partiality we're talking about here? It's interesting because one of the Greek commentators on this, he said in the strict sense, the Greek would mean to accept the outside surface for the inward reality. Okay, you tracking with me that? That's what he says, don't do that. If you want to talk about what partiality is in the strictest sense, it's saying don't look at the outside and make assumptions about the inside. You remember this with Samuel, right? Going to pick a king. Remember that? Go over to the sons of Jesse. The king's one of his sons. And they have the, like the beauty pageant with the sons of Jesse, right? All of them are coming out. There's, oh, look at this guy. Boy, he's tall. He's head and shoulders above the rest. He's got to be the one. Is that the one, Lord? That's got to be the one. Look out. He's sharp, handsome, tall. And it's like, nope, not the one. Okay, number two. Da, 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 da. What do you think, world peace? You know, and it comes all the way through. No, that's not the one. One by one, they all come through. Well, surely this is the one. Well, this is the one. No. And God's like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. We're out of brothers here. And Samuel's like, oh, is everybody here? Because he said no, and, and it's supposed to be one of these guys. What's going on here, guys? Well, there is one more brother. 
I didn't think you wanted him here too. Surely it's not him. He's, he's out with the flocks, you know. We can bring him in here. Hey, we're not going to sit down. We're not going to do anything until he comes in here. And when he comes in, God's like, boom, that's the one. He says this. So Samuel, you know something? You look on the outward appearance. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at what? The heart. That's the difference. Now let me ask you a question. Can you look and see a heart? The reality is no, right? So you're not qualified, nor am I, to make those knee-jerk reaction decisions about people. You understand? Simple as that. You say, well, I know a guy, and he's, he's been to prison three times. He's done this and that, and he beats his wife and his kids, and he doesn't feed anybody. You know. Well, you now you're starting to talk about a lot of other stuff where you've watched somebody for a amount of time, and you've seen a track record. I'm talking about outward appearance. I'm making a knee-jerk reaction about what this person's about. Are you tracking with me so far? Give me one of those if you are. Okay, good. So it, it's, it's making a value judgment on a person based upon outward indication. It comes from the Hebrew. This is really interesting. This really grabbed me in, in seminary, this little phrase here uh, called, uh, in the Hebrew, it's Masah Panim. Masah means to take or receive. Panim is faces. Okay, so it's like I'm going to receive your face. I'm not going to receive your face. If I'm showing partiality, I'm receiving your face. Okay, they even it was such a significant thing that it was used in the Hebrew. And when they came down and wrote in the Greek New Testament, guess what? They made up a whole new term for it. And so they didn't use nasab panim, but they used prosopon lampsia, which is the same thing to take or receive someone's face. And it paints, it draws back to the picture of the, the ancient Near Eastern king, right? He sits up on his throne. People come into his presence. They want an audience, help my sister, help my brother. I need some land, whatever's going on, right? And he would receive them or not. They would come in with their face down, okay? And he would look at them with whatever other knowledge he might have. And he would decide upon that appearance predominantly to receive them or not. And if he received them, he would take his scepter. He'd put the scepter underneath the chin and lift their face. And that's what this means. It talks about lifting of the face. Favoritism. Playing favorites. The Bible bans partiality throughout from beginning to end, okay? Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great. But you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Proverbs 24, 23 says, these are the sayings of the wise. To show partiality and judgment is not good. The New Testament picks up that theme and continues to forbid it. Our passage, one passage that sheds a lot of light on, I think, is in Acts chapter 10. Turn over there for just a second. Acts chapter 10. You can either turn over there or you can swipe over to it. I love this because here's, here's Peter, okay? Peter's, Peter's one of my favorite Bible characters because the guy's so into everything. He's like all in, whatever he does. He's just like, I'm ready to fight. You want to, let me cut off an ear. No, I said, no, there's no swords. You know, let me, let me, oh, no, your plan's no good, Lord. I'm gonna, you know, this is all bad stuff that he's doing, but he's just so passionate, right? And once God changes him and redeems him and begins to transform him he becomes this really neat guy who's so amazingly teachable and the peter that we find here in the book of acts is so really different from the one that we saw in the gospels he's still a passionate guy but he's following christ 
with a, a newness of understanding as the Holy Spirit has enlightened him as he's been saved by grace through faith. And so he's in Joppa. He's up on the roof, okay? What he doesn't know is there's a guy over in, uh, there's a guy named Cornelius, okay? Cornelius is a Gentile who has been given a vision that it's time to get saved, basically, okay? And then the vision says, hey, go send for Peter. Peter's up on a roof, Simon the Tanner's house. There's the address. Go get him, all right? So Peter doesn't know that's going on. All he's doing is he's, he's on the Mediterranean Sea. Yeah, it's a nice afternoon. He's up on the roof. He's relaxing. And then God gives him this vision, right? And this vision is this. He sees a sheet being lowered down out of heaven with a bunch of unclean animals on it. Now, to you and me, it's like, well, that's a sheet coming down with animals on it. Weird, okay? But to him, this is, a, this is a, something that is so ingrained. These unclean animals are so much a part of the Jewish culture. It's like, this stuff is detestable. I don't know what I would, I, there's probably nothing I could come up with that would be good to put on the sheet to give you an idea of something that make you think detestable, okay? Uh, but he's looking at this because of the food laws of the Old Testament, which were meant primarily, some for health, but primarily to separate Israel from the Gentiles, okay? That was the reason, because it's so hard to prepare this stuff that they couldn't, like, make buddies with the Gentiles and crossbreed and do all this kind of stuff, keeping everybody separate because of the remnant moving through the system, okay? So... What, what happens, he sees a sheet coming down and he hears a voice from heaven that says, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, if I'm Peter, I'm pretty excited because bacon's on there for one thing, all right? <laughs> but this is not Peter. He's devout and he thinks maybe it's a test. He's like, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm not going to eat anything unclean. Boom, pass the test. Second time, sheet comes down. Unclean animals. Peter. Arise, kill, and eat. By no means, Lord. Never a good answer. But anyway, by no means, Lord. Not, I don't eat unclean. It's not going to happen. Third time, sheet, unclean, no. And then God gets his attention, right? He says, listen up, Peter. What you don't understand is when I talk about those clean, unclean animals, that was for a purpose of, pre of preparing my remnant and keeping my remnant pure at a time. Now something's about to change. Something's changing, and you ought to be really excited about what's changing here because I don't see a lot of Jews in here, maybe a few, but all of us are Gentiles for the most part, right? And this is like, we're the unclean animals. We're not going to get killed in the, you understand? But this, we're getting cut into the deal here. Now, this is the plan in the Old Testament. This isn't anything new. I mean, you can find this stuff in the Old Testament, few and far between, but you can find it there. And here it is. And what he says is, hey, what I have said is clean. Don't you call it unclean, Peter. Now, there's some men coming. You're going to Cornelius. And you're going to see him receive the Holy Spirit. As, I received, as the Jews received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, all that kind of stuff, with accompanying signs and all that kind of thing, and, and they are going to be saved in the same manner. And this, this Gentile group is going to be grafted in. Now, Peter... Who was the apostle to the Gentiles? Paul, right? Isn't it interesting that God in his infinite wisdom picks the apostle that's really to the Jews? Peter had hung around in Jerusalem when everybody else scattered. That was his game. Why? Because Peter's the guy who's going to come back to the council and say, listen, same gospel, same process. Let me tell you what God did, and we need to accept him in. 
So when you see the gifts of tongues and you see all the stuff that's going on with that throughout the book of Acts, that's bringing in all these different segments and that's all you see of that. What's happened there? The, the Peter, who was a good Jew, was perplexed by the offer, right? And, and, but he's, God was preparing Peter for something more, something great. The Gentiles were going to be a part of the body of Christ with Cornelius. And, and he says in verse 34 and 35, he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. That's not God's way. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. One reason why we should not be guilty of the sin of partiality is because it is inconsistent with who God is, just like Peter said there in those verses I read to you. God, the Bible tells us, is not partial. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17 says, The Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, There is no partiality with God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, God is impartial. You say, well, wait a minute. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, right? What about election? <laughs> How does this all play into this? And those are reasonable questions. But what is, what is this impartiality again? Is the idea of looking upon an outward appearance and making an inward decision, right? Here's the deal. If you look at Jacob, Esau, or anybody elect or non-elect, and you looked at their heart apart from the mighty work of the grace of God, are they condemned to hell? Apart from that, you bet, right? So as God shows that grace, he's, he's, he's being absolutely pure in his judgment. It's an important part to realize here that partiality has the idea of false judgment based upon the surface, okay? God, when he judges, does so from the heart. Revelation chapter 19, verse 2 says, his judgments are true and righteous. That's why when Leviticus 19, 15 says, not to be partial, it adds, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly, Okay, it's not that we never make judgments about things, right? I mean, Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, right? We love throwing that one around in certain times, right? But you'll notice that the verses right after it have to do with, hey, clean your house so that you're able to discern what's right and wrong and help in these situations. You tracking with me so far? You're to judge your neighbor fairly. God's impartial, and that alone as we seek to reflect the character of God, is one of the reasons why we should not have practiced partiality. Another reason why we shouldn't be guilty of the sin of partiality is because Christ modeled impartiality. You know, Christ, when he came, he could have come only to the rich and handsome and popular people, right? He could have come just to the, the, the elite, the top 2%, as it were. But his life is a living and loving illustration of looking at the heart of people, not at their outward circumstances. So you find him with a Pharisee who might be moving in the right direction or needing a word of encouragement or, or condemnation or whatever. You'll see him with a, a tax collector, the most despised of his. You'll see him with a prostitute. You'll see him with a Jew. You'll see him with a Gentile, a Samaritan. He sees it totally different. Why? Because he's looking past the external and he's looking to the heart. Okay, Jesus, if you looked at Jesus from outward circumstances, you and I, we wouldn't have judged him very well if we were exercising this kind of favoritism, right? I mean, look at the people in his genealogy sometime when you have a chance in Matthew chapter 1. He's got prostitutes and Gentiles and all kinds of stuff in there. There's one guy in there who's nobody from the throne's ever going to sit in his line. 
I mean, this is a messed up genealogy. He was from Nazareth. Oh, man, that's like the Bakersfield of Israel. Sorry if you're from Bakersfield. I used to live in Bakersfield. Don't hate me. But he just looked at who he interacted with, and he had great patience with somebody who was seeking him and then responding to his teaching. And he had some form of, I won't call it impatience, but a directness with those who were just going to, I'm going to do it my way regardless. But he could see the heart. So Jews, Gentiles, Pharisees, sinners, centurion, Richmond, poor man, lepers, tax gatherers, prostitutes, the whole gamut. And by the way, if you'd looked at Jesus, not only is he from Nazareth, not only does he have a crummy bloodline, according to the earthly genealogy, he was poor. I mean, one time he did a miracle to pay a tax. Remember that in Luke chapter, or Matthew 17? What we tend to do in our society, for whatever reason, is we tend to look at the wealthy and think maybe God likes the rich man better. That's why he blesses him so much. See, he must be blessed to be living in that great place or driving that thing. Maybe he lives a better life, so he is blessed. I've spent a lot of time with celebrities and stuff in their homes in Malibu and Beverly Hills and Bel Air and places like that over my years here. And I can tell you one thing is certain. None of that stuff makes it any better. They're struggling, they're hurting, they're messed up. And sometimes the pain is even enhanced because they don't have the false hope of riches. They've got it, and now they realize it's not worth anything. Whereas somebody else who's counting on that and doesn't have it may, may persevere a little bit longer for that false hope. And we look at the poor guy, and we often think, well, he's, he's lazy. That's why he's poor. I mean, we can work and find, we can get something to do, right? Come on. He can't take care of himself. Maybe even this, God's punishing him. Now, let me ask you this. Uh, anything you have that's great, I mean, if, if you're financially blessed here, like an Abraham or somebody like that, is that a blessing from God? Yeah. And are there times that there are consequences to our sin where it may even impact our finances, for example, because we did poor things, made poor choices, unbiblical choices? Yeah. But we don't take that and then say, I'm going to take a two-second look at you and decide what you are. That's, that's the wrong perspective. See, Jesus looked past that. And it'd be nice if we could look at the heart, right? That'd be really cool. As a pastor, man, I'd love to be able to see the heart in certain counseling situations many times. Because Jesus could look at Simon, and he saw a rock, Peter, right? I mean, he, he, would, he would look at the Samaritan woman at the well and say, there's an evangelistic opportunity here that's she's at the end of her rope and it's time to hear she needs to hear the truth I mean we wouldn't have given Jesus the time of day because he was so poor that he didn't have a place to lay his head he was living off everybody else wandering around it seems like to our Americanized eyes you see what I'm afraid is we miss the reality of the situation because of our, our, our lenses are, are, are changed by what the world has taught us. Let me put that another way. We're lured to the false glory of riches in people when we see that instead of the true glory of Christ. James 
takes this idea. He says it's a sin to play favorites. And now what he does here at number two on your outline, the scene of favoritism, he gives an illustration of partiality, and he does it right here in the middle of the church itself. Verse two. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, here, you sit in the good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or you sit by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions? That's your favoritism, right? Among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. One time I preached this in my church. I was a pastor up in Kansas. And I, was, I came so close. I'm telling you to bring people in. Like guys, one of them was going to be like, you know, the... the pillar of the community guy and one that's kind of stinking up the place and dressed poorly and all that just to see how the church reacted and then preach on this. I thought that wasn't fair, but uh, he says, look, there's two guys he brings in to see our reaction, right? One of them says, a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, all right? <laughs> Literally what it says there is he's gold fingered. Um, what it means is the gold finger is not just one ring. He's got a bunch of rings. This guy's, this guy's the king of bling, right? He's a cool cat coming out. I mean, he's, he's, his fingers are loaded with rings and jewels. And by the way, the Greeks and Romans loved rings. They loved to just, it was like showing it off, you know what I'm saying? But they would wear them uh, on their left hand because on the right hand it was considered effeminate. Uh, but there was one guy, his name was... Uh, uh, Charinus, he was a first century Roman, he would walk around, check this out, man, he'd have six rings on every finger. Can you imagine? Man, I hope old Charinus doesn't fall into the swimming pool. But back then, you know, for us, rings are somewhat commonplace, but they were costly. They were a sign of wealth. And if you got six of these bad boys piled up on every finger, man, you'd de bomb, right? It says he comes in with the gold ring, he comes in with fine clothes, literally what it is, the shining, the bright clothes. The guy's just like, man, oh, you just came in, right? It's like everybody's just like, Then, in contrast to that, a poor man comes in in dirty, literally filthy clothes. The head's turned, the fingers go, the nose is, I don't think I'm going to sit over here, honey, let's go sit in a different place this week. Because we don't want to be anywhere near this guy. Then the ushers get into the act, right? <laughs> Here to the rich guy, they say, "Here, you sit in a good place." You, you, you know, a lot of people sat on the floor in the early church like that. <clears throat> they had some seats; they were good seats, facing Jerusalem, mm-hmm. places where you'd be seen in the synagogue, which is the assembly being talked about here, right? To the poor, they said, "Now you just stand over there, you know, sit, sit by the footstool." In other words, <clears throat> I'm not going to give you a chair. And I even got a chair with a footstool, and I'm not going to give you the footstool either. Get on the floor beside my footstool. I wonder how you and I would react if some type of person, whatever you deem as undesirable, came into your midst here this morning as a church. I mean, maybe it's a biker kind of guy, or maybe it's a different race that you're uncomfortable with, or, you know, somebody with... I know in my church in Kansas, I think the people who felt most uncomfortable in our church were kids, were families that had unruly kids. Because a lot of these families were just really good and well-behaved and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, you got to help. Come alongside. You, these little pagans, you need help with them, right? 
<coughs> Don't judge them. That's why your kids would be too, apart from Christ working on the situation. It's the way they are anyway sometimes. <coughs> Somebody mentally ill comes in, something like that. <coughs> Some churches, you can't even, you know, sit in my seat, right? Somebody sit in my seat this week. That's where I sit. Bel Air Presbyterian Church up on Mulholland Drive. Thanks, you. <coughs> it's a church that Reagan went to, uh, Ronald Nancy, when he was governor. And they always sat in the same spot, two thirds way back. And uh, one Sunday, uh, they arrived a little bit late, and two college students got there and sat in the seats. Danke. And uh, they sat in the seats at Reagan, the Reagan's Music Center. Usher saw that, and Usher was like, so they went down there and said, excuse me, sir, could, is this for somebody else, could you move? No problem, we moved. Later the Reagans arrived, they were ushered to the seat with the fanfare and all that kind of stuff. The pastor went and found those college students afterwards and he said, as long as I'm pastor of this church, that will never happen to you again. That's the right response. You know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, there are people who are important and there are people who, are, who, are, who deserve a certain amount of respect or whatever for position or title or something like that, but never... Never choosing them above someone else. You understand? Just based on that. James uses money as the issue here, though. Because Christians tend to listen to prosperous people. I mean, we put the prosperous in leadership in churches about as fast as we can, usually. I mean, if they can run a bank, surely they can run a church, right? And we look down on people for a lot of other reasons, you know, we got to be careful here because we do bring a corporate men- mentality to the church sometimes. If somebody's highly educated, it's like, welcome to the church elder board. If they like our type of music, well, they must be real spiritual because they like our music. Um, we look at them if, based on their age and decide, well, they're traditional or they're contemporary depending on their age. Or Sometimes we side with family members if it's that kind of church. It doesn't work that way, right? You understand this, right? The church is not a a hierarchy of people with cool jobs and nice situations uh, all kind of tiered down to people who can't afford stuff and people who are struggling or mentally ill or something like that. What we're talking about here is we're talking about these are all souls that Christ came to save on the cross, right? These are people that God cared enough that he sent his only son, right? So that they could live and not die. And as a church body, when we, when, I tell you what, when you look for a church, I think you've done that here, um, when you're looking for the guys on your elder board and things like that, you're not looking for what job they have and things like that. You're looking for spiritual men who fulfill the qualifications of an elder, who hunger and thirst after righteousness, who are examples. Not perfect men, but above reproach, right? Not just, you know, they've got a, they, maybe he'll have an influence or get us something. James says when you make value judgments based on something other than that spiritual reality, you become people who make distinctions among themselves and are, what does he call them, judges with impure motives. If you got the KJV, it says judges of impure motives. That's not a good translation. Grammatically, it's better with impure motives. And, and that's the problem right there is judging with evil motives. So, you know, it's not that you don't make decisions and you exercise discernment, as I said earlier, It is this idea of I'm making decisions based upon my own hierarchy 
that comes from my personal background rather than biblical truth. I mean, you wouldn't go through life and say, I can't make, I can't make judgments about things in life, right? I mean, like some of you are single, you're figuring out maybe this is the guy or this is the gal I'm going to marry, right? I mean, you got to think through that, right? It's not just like, well, they're available, Boom, you know, let's go. <coughs> Pop the question. It's not like that at all. I mean, if you're choosing a spouse, you're choosing a job, different things, they're prayerfully considering things. <coughs> and you're thinking through the whole issue of, okay, is this in line with God's character? I mean, is this job going to ask me to do things that are different from what my Christian faith would allow me to do, for example? We also use discernment in determining sin in the midst. That's what church discipline's about, right? And it's important that we get the log out of our own eyes so we help the brother with the speck, but that's where church discipline comes in as well. We use discernment when we choose leaders. We're told in the word of God not to act hastily, and here's some qualifications. But again, all these things we're talking about are analytical based upon biblical truth, not our own preferences, and then comparing these things to see if they fit or not over a period of time, rather than I look at you, I see the color of your skin or whatever it is, and I don't like you. I don't think you're capable of this or that. That's when we judge with evil motives. The ability to discern, do you not judge, crino, God's the only judge, is a characteristic of a mature Christian. Hebrews 5.14 tells us that he has the ability to discern good and evil. But it's comparing truth to a situation at hand and it involves an element of time and understanding. Solomon asked for wisdom so that he'd be able to discern and, and judge well. And God didn't go, no, 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 no judging here, right? In fact, he recommended him on that. He thought it was a great thing to ask for. <clears throat> In judging a man's heart at first glance, you've elevated yourself to being God. You basically said, I'm God. I know best. It's natural. It is so natural for us to do that. But it's wrong. And what God enables you to do, and this is the cool part, all right? You ready for this? God enables us to do things that are supernatural, all right? He's changing us to be different than natural, other than natural, supernatural. So what he says, he says, don't, don't exercise favoritism. He's saying, guys, I want you to live above that because I want that guy or gal who comes in here with whatever the baggage is that you're uncomfortable with to know that you love them because you see them through the lens of how I see them. As, as precious lost souls who need the gospel of Jesus Christ or are or, or saved Christians who have heard the gospel and need a fellowship to come alongside and help them along the path that they may grow and reach others and help others to grow. We need to look at others through the eyes of Christ. God created people in all different shapes, sizes, colors, socioeconomic brackets. Some people are smart, and the reality is some people aren't smart, right? Raise your hand if you're not smart. No, don't do that, please. No, I like false humility in the church, all right? <laughs> Who are we to make evil distinctions and to treat them as subpar in the body of Christ? Last time we were together, I mentioned that widow who was in the treasury who made her offering, right? And people were lining up at the temple watching 
guys come by and make their offerings. The Pharisees would come by, blow a trumpet, drop their loud, you know, offerings into the brass trumpet-shaped uh, treasuries there in the temple. And people would applaud and get excited and hallelujah or whatever else. And unnoticed by anybody other than the eyes of Christ was a little widow who came along with a couple of little small coins. It just happened to be all that she had. She dropped them in there to the imperceptible sound. Probably couldn't even be heard dropping in amongst the rest of the noise in the temple. And Jesus looked over at her and said, she's, she's giving, that's giving. That, that's, that's my heart right there. Because she, they gave out of their abundance and she gave all that she had. You see, Christ is looking so differently. We're not about who can write the biggest checks and all that kind of stuff. We're looking at the gifts. And in, in, in our case, we tend to look at the gift and go, wow, wasn't that great? They donated a building. And what Jesus does is he's looking and saying, well, look at the heart. And you know what's encouraging about that? I may never have enough money to donate a building to anything. But I can give like Christ wants me to give and please him with my heart by his grace. Isn't that cool? That I can uh, love others because he's empowered me to do such a thing. And he'll look at my heart and go, well done, good and faithful servant. But I can teach a group of first graders or second graders the basic stories of the Bible and theology. and Nobody may ever know my name and they may not even remember my name by the time they get to fifth grade. But... God's word impacted their lives and God saw the heart and it was a ministry for his purposes and his kingdom. See, isn't that the calling? The calling is for us to align ourselves with God's truth and be different. To show the world that our God is an awesome and powerful God who not only saves souls but transforms lives. And in our imperfections, even to go and say, will you please forgive me after I've done something that was uncharacteristic of my Lord still shows that we're different because we can't, we can't comprehend not getting those things right with one another. Somebody once said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. What they meant by that was, come on, come all right. That it's not like there's a high spot where you can reach Jesus easier from. We're all equally mired in the pit of our sins. We're all enemies abiding under the wrath of God when we come to the cross. We can't save ourselves because we can't keep the Ten Commandments, right? Right? I mean, you may say, oh, I've never murdered somebody, but Jesus brought that home in the Sermon on the Mount and said, well, if you look on your brother with hate, it's murder. Well, I guess I've failed on that one too, huh? So we know that just like I said, if you, if you, if you fail on one part of the law, you're guilty of it all, just as our pastors will say here a little bit later. I can't say myself. I can't get enough people to light candles for me. I can't get people to go get baptized in Salt Lake City for me. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I need God to reach down into the pit that I reside in and by his grace save my soul. Open my eyes that I can see, give sight to the blind, give speech to the dumb, give steps to the lame, give faith to the faithless. And 
praise God he does it. And praise God that when he does it, he sets you on a journey of transformation. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, where you're being transformed from glory to glory, to glory, to glory, to glory. God's not finished with any of us right yet, yet, right? I mean, we'll never be more saved than we are right now. You understand that. But he's also, I mean, if it was all about changing eternal addresses, here's how it works. Does this make sense to you? Do you put your faith in Christ? Yes, I do. La, la, la. Boom. Take me to heaven. It's over. That's all I need. All right? But he leaves us here because he's, he's, he's taken us and he's transforming and, and working on us to reflect him more and more to a watching world so that we might be instruments in his hand to reach a lost and dying world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, 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 lose, I never lose sight of the fact when I stand here that in that upper room in Acts, there was what? How many people were up there? Do you remember? Anybody? Huh? That is correct. We'll give you some Cheetos. 120. How many are in here? I don't know, but I'm guessing 150. What happens? God sent his message out with 120 people empowered by his spirit with his word, right? Here we got at least that number in here. Let's, with the same God, who, with the same indwelling spirit, with the same word of God, although it's all the way in fullness now, the more sure word has been completed, and we can go forth into a watching world, and we're going, I don't know, there's no hope for L.A. Let's go out, let's share the gospel, but let's do it from a position where we live in a supernatural way. That is, that we live in a way that is different from the way the world lives, and part of that is the fact that we do not begin to judge everybody when we look at them, but we come alongside them because we care about them for the sake of the gospel of Christ and for the glory of God. How's that sound? You think L.A. could be impacted if that's God's will? You bet. You think the whole world could be impacted? Sure. God is not limited there, huh? How usable are we? That's always the question. And so when I come to something like this in James, it just reminds me of something that we don't talk about much, and I thought it would be good to talk about, and we'll finish it up next time. But it's something that's kind of an acceptable sin. Where we just look at people and you know, kind of segment in our own little categories. No longer acceptable. God's truth has spoken. May we be pliable in his hand and be used for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We just thank you so much, God, that you are uh, able to change fallen hearts and, and make us into new creations so that we might live and glorify your name. We know it's by your grace, not through works of our own, uh, but Lord, we just rejoice that you are the kind of God who, who is able to save and willing to save and transform. Lord, may we be found useful in you and your potter's hands. In Christ's name, amen.